Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Kai Wortmann, the co-host of the channel, and I'm here today with Itai Snier to talk about his new book, Education and Thinking in Continental Philosophy, Thinking Against the Current in Adorno, Arendt, Deleuze, Derrida, and Rancière. In this book, Snier focuses on the unique intersections between education, thinking, and politics in the writings of the five philosophers, and that was really a fascinating tour de force through their work. So I'm really happy to have the author here. Itay, welcome to New Books in Education. Hello, Kai, and thank you very much for inviting me. Before talking about the book, can you maybe start off by saying a little bit about your background? So what brought you into questions on education? Uh, my academic uh, path did not start with education, actually. Uh, I studied philosophy, and my dissertation was on political philosophy. But I, I studied the concept of common sense uh, as a political and philosophical concept and even a problem. And while uh, writing the dissertation, I had to work, and I just I worked as a school teacher. I, find a, I found a job as a school teacher, Uh, teaching philosophy, which is quite rare in Israel. Uh, like most European countries, uh, most Israeli high school students do not study philosophy. There are quite a few schools throughout the country in which philosophy is being taught regularly. Uh, and I found a job at one of them, and I enjoyed teaching philosophy to high school students so much that I stayed for 12 years, which is quite a lot, I think. Uh, there are some teachers who think 12 years are nothing. You know, this uh, uh, profession, uh, people can last uh, sometimes 40, 50 Ages. years. Of the, <laughs> the senior teachers, uh, 12, 12 years sound nothing to them, but I think it's quite a lot. Uh, so after completing my dissertation on political philosophy, I decided to combine uh, those two fields of interest, uh, my interest in philosophy on the one hand, and my interest in education. And I started working, I turned into the philosophy of education. And now I teach uh, in several institutions. I'm a senior lecturer at the Emic Israel Academic College at the North of Israel, and I also teach uh, philosophy and education uh, in Tel Aviv University and the Open University of Israel. And can you tell me a bit more about the genesis of the book we are talking about today? Yes. Uh, the book seemed to me, in a way, to be a natural offspring, like educational offspring, a child of my interest in the concept of common sense. Uh, what is common sense? This was, of course, the, as I said, the question I worked on uh, I worked in my dissertation. Uh, but common sense usually is thought of as what ordinary people, everybody, think or assume without actually thinking. In a way, thinking is thought by many philosophers, not all, to be counter-commonsensical. Think about Socrates, for example. Not the first philosopher, but, uh, of course, the philosopher who brought, the one who brought philosophy from the sky down to earth. Socrates discusses, discussed with the citizens of Athens about things they more or less took for granted. And since Socrates, since Socrates, 
philosophy in a way questions common, common sense. Philosophical thinking is a critique of common sense. So this project is in uh, this project that brings together education and thinking is on the one hand a continuation of my preoccupation with common sense, and on the other hand, taking it to the field of education. Okay, so maybe we can now more delve into the the book as a as a whole and i i'd like to ask you about the subtitle first uh, thinking against the current what does that mean one thread that goes throughout the book is the question what is thinking and this is not only a difficult question a difficult philosophical question not only it is also quite a rare question surprisingly maybe surprisingly uh, philosophers think philosophers uh, are what Hannah Arendt called professional thinkers this is how Arendt described philosophers but philosophers quite rarely ask what is thinking the founding father of modern philosophy René Descartes argued that man is a thinking being. I can question my body, my identity, my sense perception, even my mathematical knowledge, but not the fact that I think, according to Descartes, therefore I am a thinking being. And everything that goes through my mind, according to Descartes, is a kind of thinking. I think, therefore I am said Descartes, as long as I am, I think. So thinking in itself was not seen as a problem throughout modern philosophy. The question was, what does good thinking mean? We all think. We all think all the time, according to the Cartesian tradition. The question should be according to that tradition, how to think properly. What is the right method, as Descartes uh, put it, or what does it mean to think critically? Now, so thinking, really thinking, has something that goes against the way we usually do things. Really thinking. What is the current that thinking goes against, it is the current of everyday life. It is the current of the way things usually are. When we think, we have to stop in order to think. We have to focus, we have to concentrate, we have to stop doing things automatically. Therefore, even though each and every philosopher I examined, I studied, thinks differently about thinking, defines thinking differently, in a different way, they all think that thinking is a kind of activity that goes against the current of everyday life, that allows us or demands us to do something differently against the current. Okay, so as you as you mentioned, uh, your book contains uh, five studies on five big names in in continental philosophy, and uh, my question is: Can you explain what that means, continental philosophy, and and maybe what what holds these five names together? Okay, uh, so let's talk about the, the the head title: Education and Thinking in Continental Philosophy. Uh, uh, what is education, what is the relation between education and thinking, and of course, as you asked, what does continental philosophy mean? Uh, I start with the first part, if you don't mind, uh, because education for thinking is a huge theme uh, in contemporary education, mostly, not only, but mostly in English-speaking countries. 
The idea behind education for thinking is a very interesting one, and I strongly support it. The, the assumption is that education is not or should not be all about the transference of knowledge. It's not about what Paulo Freire called uh, the banking model of education. I, the teacher, have knowledge in my mind. The student is an empty vessel. I have to transfer knowledge from my mind into the mind, the empty mind of the student. Against this old-fashioned model, the idea of education for thinking says that the whole point in education is when the students are active, when we as teachers encourage them to think for themselves, namely when we give them not only the opportunity, but also the tools with which to think. This is on the one hand in line with what I called the Cartesian tradition, the one starting with Descartes in the 17th century. Descartes said, we all think all the time. The question is how to think properly. We must have a method, and he designed a method. Descartes designed one method, the proper method for thinking. After Descartes, of course, many other philosophers developed other methods, and Contemporary education for thinking tries in different, very interesting ways, again, to encourage students to think and to give them proper tools for thinking, assuming that encouraging and, and, and giving, again, our students the right tools to think with, it is important not only educationally, namely, it will not only allow them uh, uh, to study the right materials, uh, the subject matter, the, the educational subject matters, and so on, but it will also turn them into active citizens. It is important for vital democracy that our students will grow up to be thinking individuals, thinking citizens, thinking subjects, and so on. But there's a big but. But this, roughly speaking, Anglo-American tradition of education for thinking uses, I think, a somewhat narrow conception of thinking it is too much attached to the old Cartesian modern or even early modern tradition. It assumes that we all think all the time. It assumes that there is a method for proper thinking. And maybe above all, it focuses on the concept of rationality, of reason. Assuming that thinking properly is simply thinking rationally. Of course, some theorists, educationalists, also insist uh, we have also to develop uh, the students' uh, psychological abilities to be independent and think creatively and so on. But the focus remains on rationality. Teaching students to think means teaching them to be consistent, teaching them to phrase their arguments properly, to build solid arguments, to be careful of fallacies, to be able to recognize fallacies in other people's arguments, and so on. And this, I think, is rather narrow understanding of thinking. Now, European philosophers in the last couple of decades, at least since the second half of the 20th 
century have developed various alternative understandings of the very concept of thinking. European philosophers gave some original, highly interesting suggestions as to what does it really mean to think. Now, you ask, what is continental philosophy? Now, even though I used this term in the title of my book, I must be honest and say something like, there is no such thing as continental philosophy, at least not as one unified tradition. Maybe there are some differences between the style, the philosophical style uh, that Anglo-American philosophers... Sorry? The, the style of thinking, maybe. The style, the style of thinking, exactly. The style of thinking, the style of writing uh, that characterizes, which characterizes Anglo-American thinkers, whereas your continental European philosophers, French, German philosophers, are inclined to, to a different style, at least. Uh, but there is no one thing called continental philosophy. There is no one tradition. Each and every continental philosopher, each and every grand continental philosopher, is, is, is a world in itself, in a way. So this is why I decided that the five different chapters of my book will offer five independent paths, the independent uh, ways into the field of education and thinking. Adorno has his own way, Arendt has her own way, uh, and so does uh, Derrida, Deleuze, and Ranciere. Uh, not because they don't read each other, not because they do not critique each other, but precisely because each of them develop his or her unique understanding of thinking, and therefore his or her unique understanding of what would education for thinking be. Now, almost all of the five continental philosophers I focus on are not really educational philosophers, philosophers of education. Some of them wrote about education. Ranciere wrote a book on education. Derrida uh, wrote and was active in relation to uh, the study of philosophy in French schools uh, and also wrote about the university. Arendt wrote two articles about education Adorno uh, gave very important and interesting radio talks about education, but none of them focused on, on education as a really major theme in their philosophical careers. Uh, uh, they're all more or less political philosophers. They're, they all had very interesting things to say about metaphysics, but education is relatively, relatively a minor subject uh, in their philosophical oeuvre. And this is why it was a challenge each time, again, five, in, in the five different philosophers, it was every time a new challenge to apply their interesting, original, unique understandings of thinking, their conceptions of thinking, to education. Arendt, for example, wrote very, very interesting things about thinking. She wrote a book about thinking, but in her essays on education, she does not say anything about thinking. So my challenge, part of my challenge was to ask, to apply this question 
to the five different philosophers I focused on. What would education for thinking mean to each of the five different philosophers according to their original conceptions of thinking? So what I what I really love about your book is that it is it is both very bold and extremely modest, I feel. On on the one hand, you really take up this challenge to present the thinking of these five huge authors, so almost an impossible challenge to to succeed. Uh, but on the other hand, you do this in a way that is really uh, it seems to me it really stays true to each individual author. So you don't force external questions or problems on them, so but you really uh, follow follow their 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 writing and and try to um, stay true to to each of 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 them. Yes, um, thank you. It, it, it was it was a hard decision, really, uh, because it, it means that each of the book chapters is more or less independent. Uh, now, it's it, it's an advantage in, in a way, of course. Uh, I can also uh, tell our, our listeners that it is uh, perfectly possible to read each of the of the chapters individually. They do not depend on each other. You can uh, read uh, the one on uh, Rancière or Derrida without reading uh, the previous ones on uh, Adorno or Arendt or Deleuze. On the other hand, uh, it made the book a bit uh, not exactly fragmentary, but uh, it it, uh, it does not have one complete uh, um, method or system. I do not have one answer to the question. So, what is education for thinking? What do you think is education for thinking according to the continental European tradition? There is no one answer. I gave this up. I offer five different answers, five individual answers, uh, one according to each philosopher, and I invite my readers to follow the path, to walk with me along the lines of, of Adorno, and then Arendt, uh, Deleuze, Derrida, and Rancière, individually. So before we started the, the recording, uh, we thought, how can we... How can we um, manage to present uh, uh, the the five um, uh, different authors? And we gave up on this. Yes, but it decided, is. <laughs> Absolutely decided right. to, decided it would be impossible. <laughs> right. Uh, but um, uh, we decided to give space to, to one of them, uh, which is Adorno. And... Um, Maybe after we uh, talked about Adorno a bit, we can maybe give a short outlook on, on the other names. But I can also say that if you're interested in uh, the work of uh, Hannah Arendt, uh, then uh, I can recommend the podcast with uh, Morten on, on, uh, on her work, which uh, I also did a few uh, days ago. Uh, but... Today we yeah, start with <laughs> Let's start with, with Adorno. Uh, how, how to start with Adorno, Itay? First of all, Adorno was no stranger to educational questions, of course. Uh, he did write and, most importantly, recorded public radio talks uh, on, the gener on the German uh, radio broadcast uh, 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 radio station uh, to the general public. It was quite unusual for Adorno to approach the general public. He was sometimes what people may call a snob, right? a professor who uh, works on, on, on the most, in the ivory tower and relatively rarely approaches the general public, but education was important enough for him. Education is important according to Adorno. And it is important to talk to the general public about educational questions uh, because he really thought that 
if there is hope, and there's a big if, and this is a big if, of course, but if there's hope to Western culture, to Western civilization, then education is the key. The context for Adorno's thought, of course, is the Second World War. The Second World War, the Holocaust, uh, the Nazi regime, and the attempt to think Germany, Europe, the world, again, after what happened uh, during the time of the Nazis. And Adorno thought that the Nazi regime was not just an accident, and that even post-Nazi Germany, even post-Nazi Europe, still had the fundamental characteristics uh, of, of, of that Germany and that Europe that made Nazism possible. And the big challenge, according to Adorno, and he does think that it is almost impossible to reverse history and change what he called the objective conditions, namely the socio-political conditions that made Nazism possible. What is possible is to act on what he called the subjective conditions, namely people, uh, the, the subjects. We will not be able to change the, na the, the nation state. It is almost impossible to fight capitalism, and capitalism is deeply connected to anti-Semitism and even Nazism, according to Adorno. I'll, I'll get to that a bit later. It is possible to educate people, to encourage them to be brave enough and open enough to reject anti-Semitism, to reject neo-Nazism, and so on. Education is the almost our only hope, according to Adorno. And the collection of his interviews and radio talks uh, has the title Erziehung für Mündigkeit, Education for a responsibility, maturity and responsibility, uh, as it is uh, translated to English. Uh, of course, he follows in the footsteps of Immanuel Kant uh, and, and Kant's famous essay on the Enlightenment, where Kant says, Enlightenment is thinking for oneself. Sapere aude is the motto of the Enlightenment, according to Kant. Dare to think. Think for yourself. And according to Adorno, even though he is far from embracing Kant wholeheartedly, uh, he has a critique of Kant, but he, he, he adopts the Kantian dictum of sapere aude. We must educate our students to think for themselves. And this is the motto that also uh, uh, hovers above everything that Adorno writes or says about education. But maybe because most of his lectures and interviews about education were aimed at the general public, in these talks on education, Adorno does not develop the concept of thinking. In his other writings, he does have very interesting, original, and complicated things to say about education about sorry about uh, about the concept of thinking about what does it really mean to think and my, my project here was again to combine those two strands in Adorno's oeuvre and Adorno's thought the one about education and the one about thinking so I said some things about Adorno and education. Now let's talk about his conception of thinking. Adorno was in a way a Marxist, a follower of Karl Marx. And according to Marx, or at least to Marxist orthodoxy, thinking is an epiphenomenon of reality. 
uh, it is part of the uh, of the superstructure. It only reflects reality, and this is where one of the places where Adorno parts ways uh, with with Marx. Adorno does think that thinking structures of thought are crucial for the development of Western civilization uh, and also in capitalism. For example, if we go back to the famous opening lines of the Dialectics of Enlightenment, the famous book Adorno wrote uh, during uh, the Second World War with his friend and colleague Max, Max Horkheimer, uh, they begin the dialectic of enlightenment by saying that the major problem in at least Western civilization is that of Herrschaft, domination. And domination is the key to our civilization, to the enlightenment, from the very beginning because it is part of the way we think. Herrschaft, domination, is built in the way we approach reality. To explain this, we can use uh, uh, concepts most developed by Horkheimer, Adorno's, uh, uh, again, friend and colleague. Reason, thinking, sometimes have it sometimes has, sorry, objective uh, uh, qualities when it is after the truth, when it wants to understand the object, when it is really after what is out there. But most of the time, in at least in our civilization, in Western culture, it has subjective or instrumental uh, 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 mode. It is instrumental because it serves other external means. Reason, according to uh, the way Horkheimer and Adorno understand Western civilization, reason is all about using things for external means, almost all about. Right, because uh, this objective reason, the good part of reason, almost disappears throughout history. How does thinking, how does instrumental thinking, what does it have to do with with domination? Adorno calls this kind of thinking identity thinking. In order to dominate nature, in order to, dom to dominate the world, when we think, we have to conceptualize, we have to ignore differences between particular objects and say, the differences between this object and this object and this object are irrelevant. They are all instances of the same category. Categorical thinking is identity thinking because it ignores differences and applies general concepts to many particulars. Conceptual thinking is identity thinking. Again, it identifies through ignoring differences in order to be able to manipulate. This, according to Adorno and Horkheimer, this is exactly what science does. Science is all about generalities. It's about rules, laws, general theories. Science is not interested in the particular characteristics of each and every object. Science is all about general laws. Science is needed to dominate the world. Thanks to science, we can survive. 
it's very actual. Uh, it's very, very relevant now, right? Uh, uh, during the pandemic, we wait for science to save us, to save us from nature. Of course, the pandemic is not exactly natural, right? It is also uh, probably a result of our mistreatment of nature. And this is exactly what Adorno and Horkheimer are talking about. The way we treat the world in the mind is contaminated by domination. This is the way we think from the very beginning of our history. I hope this is more or less clear. Can I can I interrupt you shortly and ask for for maybe a, a, a more trivial example than science? So, if I understood you correctly, uh, categorization is always domination for exactly. Animals. Exactly. And if if we think about uh, let's say um, an educational example, a uh, 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 diagnosis. Like for example, um, this uh, this student has um, a psychological um, uh, how how to say um, th this this psychological problem mm -hmm. and therefore needs this and that treatment. Beautiful example. So for 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 Adorno, that would mean we lose the individually exactly of this students by yeah. applying a category to the students which does not come from the student him or herself exactly exactly and even if your intentions as a teacher or, or consultant are, are good uh, when you use categorization in fact you are dominating you are applying a general structure to the individual And by doing so, you are missing the particular qualities of the individual student. You don't see her or him. You, you don't really understand the student as a subject, as a full subject, as a unique subject. The world is full of unique particulars. Not even... Not only, sorry, not only human beings. Of course, it also applies to human beings. Maybe before everything, of course. And now you can see, since you turned our attention to, to human beings, from science to, to human beings, this is exactly why Adorno thinks that anti-Semitism, racism, even Nazism is already there at the very beginning of our civilization. What is racism if not if not categorization saying all jews are this and that or even all people who have a black skin uh, all all homosexuals all uh, uh, whatever you want right uh, so categorization is tightly linked to domination uh, in a way, of course, Adorno uh, likes to exaggerate uh, poetically in, in, in a way, but Auschwitz, this death factory in which not the individual, but the specimen was executed, was killed, was murdered, Auschwitz was already there at the very beginning of our civilization. The seeds of Auschwitz were planted at the very beginning of the Enlightenment in, in ancient Greece. Now, going back to the conception of thinking, his important claim here is that identity thinking is not really thinking. It is using your mind, activating your brain power, but not thought worthy of its name. And this is an intentional, explicit challenge to the Cartesian tradition, to the tradition that started with Descartes in the 17th century. As I mentioned earlier, according to Descartes, and a long tradition that lasts to these days, to these days, everything that goes on in our minds is a kind of thinking. And Adorno says, no. When your mind just operates, categorizes, 
dominates goes with the flow right or, or, or with the current you don't really think really thinking is going against this current my the, the subtitle of my book is taken from adorno really thinking is working hard mentally intellectually against this current of categorization now what does it mean what does it mean for thinking not to identify it means trying to connect with the individual object so a key term or concept in Adorno's conce original conception of thinking is experience. There is no thinking, real thinking, non-identifying thinking without experience. Because when we really, really think, we have to connect to the object. We have, so to speak, to let the object speak, to let the object tell us about itself. Now, in my book, in the chapter on Adorno, in my book, I compared his view to, to John Dewey's. John Dewey, uh, the American philosophers of, philosopher uh, uh, of education, uh, maybe the founding father of Anglo-American education for thinking. Dewey's views on education for thinking are very interesting, and at first glance, there are quite interesting similarities between Adorno's view of education for thinking and Dewey's. Dewey also says, thinking is all about experience. To encourage our students to think, we must take them out of the classroom, not just tell them how the world behaves, so to speak, again, but encourage our students to experience the world. And when they experience the world, according to Dewey, they will be able to recognize uh, uh, regulations, to, regul to, to understand that eventually, to understand that this happens because something else happened before. They will be able to recognize relations of cause and effect. Now, this Dewey understanding of thinking, his project of education for thinking, is highly influential and also uh, very important, and there are beautiful parts in it. Right? Dewey rejects the traditional hierarchy of knowledge and he, he replaced, according to which, right, there's, there's, there's a teacher with knowledge and a, students without, a student without knowledge, and the teacher must transfer knowledge to the empty mind of the student. You rejects all that and replaces it with an understanding of education in which the student is active. The student studies the world. But what would Adorno say? Adorno does not discuss uh, explicitly Dewey's understanding of education for thinking. But according to uh, my interpretation, I'm quite sure Adorno would reject Dewey's conception of education for thinking. Because eventually, Dewey's understanding for thinking also is also part of what Adorno calls identity thinking. It's about categorizing the world. It's about understanding laws in nature. It, about, it is about recognizing regular causes who are no, wait, responsible for the same effects. So this experience Dewey is talking about is part of 
the structure, the model of domination, eventually. And it is no surprise that for Dewey, the model for thinking is science. We must, according to Dewey, encourage our students to be little scientists. It sounds beautiful. And it is beautiful in a way, but according to Adorno, it is also highly problematic because we must remember that science is not only about understanding the world. It is not only about improving our lives. It is also about all that. Adorno does not forget that. But science is also about dominating the world. It is also about dominating other people. Real experience, according to Adorno, is being able to get in touch with the non-identical as such, as something that exceeds existing categories and concepts, giving yourself as a thinker to the particular object. Now, to do that, or let's put it this way, it is not easy to do that in everyday life. Our everyday lives are, uh, uh, we have all kinds of aims, goals. We can't really live our everyday lives in such a way as to give attention, real attention to particular objects. Thinking the way I read Adorno's understanding of thinking, thinking needs its own time and place. And I do think this is what Adornist education can and should be. Adorno has stark critique of the school. Contemporary schools, according to Adorno, are places of what he called Halbbildung, half education bad education. They assimilate students into society instead of encouraging them to be individual thinkers, individual subjects. But schools do not have to be such uh, places of Halbildung. They can be places in which students think. In order to do that, we have to think of subject matter, right? At school, school is all about putting something on the table, the way uh, Jan Marsilain and Martin Simons uh, put it in their uh, analysis of the school, in their defense of the school. It's all about the subject matter on the table. Now, when Adorno talks about thinking, he asks us to reverse the relations between subject and object. The very term, the very notion of subject involves dominating the object. But what happens when the object becomes subject matter? In school, at school, it becomes a subject. Right? At school, the object becomes subject matter. It becomes a subject. School is all about, according to my, again, my reading of Adorno, school should be all about taking an object, turning, turning it into subject matter turning it into a subject, letting it speak to me. At school, again, the object becomes subject. It is allowed to speak. And we can reflect on, 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 on each subject matter as particular. And the aim is not exactly knowledge, the aim of thought. The aim is understanding the object in its particularity. It is also very important to say that according to Adorno, thinking does not require any 
previous experience. You don't have to be an educated professor like Adorno himself to think about subjects, to, to, to think about objects by allowing them to be subjects, right? Every child can do that. The last part of my chapter on Adorno in the book tries to think, how can this work? Now, a key, a key to the answer is, is language. When a subject student interacts with subject matter, he or she must give linguistic articulation to this experience. And for Adorno, linguistic articulation takes place first and foremost in writing. And Adorno gives us a, 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 a very interesting term through which to think about thoughtful writing. And it is the essay. The, the essay is a very unique genre or kind of writing, according to, to Adorno. It is not committed to anything, real essays, not necessarily everything that we call essay today, right? But if we follow Adorno's understanding of, of, of writing essays, of, of his conception of essays, real essays let the object speak, let the object again become subject matter and translate the object into words. So my suggestion, my attempt to formulate an Adornian perspective on education for thinking is to invite students to think about subject matter and write essays. In a way for Adorno, a thinking community, turning school into a thinking community, would be possible if we invite our students to write essays, to read, of course, essays other students have written. An essay as an experiment in thought. Adorno himself gave us beautiful examples of such essays. Think of his beautiful book, Minima Moralia. Minima Moralia is a collection of fragments, aphorisms, but this is exactly what Adorno calls essays. In this book, in Minima Moralia, Adorno pays careful attention to many, many different phenomena, to many different objects, letting, letting them speak to him. He does not impose his pre-existing categories on whatever he's thinking about. He allows things to talk to him. Now again, you don't have to be a professor like Adorno to write essays. We can invite our students to do so. We can invite them to write essays, thereby inviting them to think. Can I can I ask you for for clarification? When you say uh, let the object speak, <laughs> sounds almost uh, mystical, right? <laughs> that, that sounds very mystical, and it's it's a great metaphor which I also like to use. But uh, the more I think about it, I mean, I mean, it it entails that the object uses some kind of of language, and so it the object speaks. It uses a language. And the person who listens then needs to understand this this language. And of course, one could say language always already consists of categories. So can we can we escape this this um, vicious circles of of uh, identity thinking? Thank you. Beautiful question. Because of course, of course, the answer is is never completely. Never completely, but because, as you said, language necessarily categorizes to some 
extent, to some degree. But not all users of language are, are the same. There is, let's call it the scientific or even academic way of using language. I claim that ABC, uh, and this is because DEF, and here are my arguments and, and my, my proofs and, and so on and so forth, but we can use language differently. We can use language poetically. Of course, a poetic use of language and rational use of language are not complete opposites. We can combine. But how do poets use language? What is the difference between, let's take a cliche, of course, between the way a scientist uh, would describe a flower and the way a poet would describe a flower? The poet, in this, again, cliche example, good poet would, will be able to use language to describe a particular flower or a particular flower in a particular situation, a particular flower in a particular situation, a particular time to particular people. My, the, the, the woman I love gave me this flower and this flower is nothing like any other flower in the world and so on and, and, and so forth. Poets can do that. It is poetic language can do that. So when we invite students to write essays, we should not, we must not ask them to write rationally, to give, present arguments. They can do that. It's okay. This is part of our, sometimes our relation to the world, to objects, to subject matter demands rational arguments. But not only. What does it mean to lead, to, 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 to allow, sorry, to, to allow the object to lead us? It is to look at it and try to say something with language about what is unique to it. Now, we will never es completely escape uh, uh, domination, but we will let the object dominate us no less than we dominate it. So we'll have some kind of reciprocal relations with this object. And this, in a way, is what Adorno, I think, would uh, like to see as a real deep understanding of education for thinking. But when I, when I take up your example uh, with the description of flower, mm -hmm. of course, you, you, I, I expect you made this up <laughs> from, from the scratch now. But, <laughs> but uh, I think... The, the terms you used as examples for, for uh, and sorry for this very critical questions, but it will be my last critical question, I promise. No, go um, ahead. <laughs> uh, the, the terms you used to me seemed very much like uh, already pre-existing, all, all, almost like cliches, the love of my life and oh, this mm -hmm. flower as a yeah. sign of love and so on. I think it, it is a completely already existing uh, uh, category of, <laughs> of language about romantic love, uh, if, if you want. So, so I, I really, I mean, I, I love the idea, but I still have problems to to really imagine uh, uh, how, how to escape this and, and then also how to educate for this. Uh, because um, then it seems to me that the, that the role of the teacher, for example, is, is um, uh, and of course one could uh, put this argument forward, but it would be really reduced to offering a space for students to really think Mm -hmm. and then hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why not? I, I, I think you're not far from the way I think about it, uh, but let's me, let, let me offer two different, maybe complementary, uh, but two different answers. First, of course, good poetry avoid, can, should and can 
avoid cliches. I, I, I made up a cliche example, uh, and I'm no poet. Uh, but even even when and if I try to write essay, I, I, I will not write about uh, the flower my uh, uh, my loved one gave me, but. Exactly, a general example misses the whole point, right? I would choose a particular flower that a particular woman or man, right, doesn't matter, who is very unique to me, gave me in a very unique situation. And if I really give myself in to the unique object and unique situation, Uh, uh, there is a chance that I will be able to avoid cliches and really get in touch with 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 a unique particular. But there's the, the second answer, uh, which is uh, almost what you said, is that nothing. There's no guarantee. Essay, right? It, it comes to the French essayer. Uh, we try. It's an attempt. And not every attempt succeeds. Uh, I, I think if you want to be adornists, we must not expect any educational method uh, to be systematic, bulletproof, and be able to produce thinking individuals, thinking subjects. It is impossible. Uh, in a way, maybe you should, we should have started with that. There's something almost contradictory in my project, Education for Thinking Individual Subjects, because how do you influence someone else making them independent, right? I, I hope the, the, the contradiction or at least tension is clear. You want to influence someone and help them become independent. Uh, That's already in, in Kant, right? Absolutely. How to educate yeah, yeah, for yes. freedom when in, in all these constraints. Absolutely. Uh, but, but it is possible. It is possible, but no guarantees. It may fail. All we can do is invite our students to think and provide them with the... Conditions. It is not. It is far from trivial. It is far from trivial. I mean, allowing them space and time to think, uh, giving them uh, what uh, uh, to take a phrase from a different context, but not very, very different. A room of their own, right? I'm, I'm almost quote quoting or, or, or stealing from Virginia Woolf, of course, uh, who, who wrote in the feminist context. But thinking about children is not always far away from thinking about uh, uh, women and giving children room of their own, giving them room to think, does not promise anything. But it is not trivial. Telling them this is not for the exam. Uh, you will not be graded for that. Uh, it will not make you a better Uh, a, a, a banker or, sorry for, again, cliche examples. It will not make you a better lawyer or, or, or a better professor. It will make you a better thinker. If you focus on the object now, if you really yield to the object, let the object speak to you. Let the object become subject matter. Success is, is uh, not granted, right? Failure is an option. It is built in, into education. Uh, but this is what thinking means. It means taking risks. It means taking time. It means stepping back. Stepping back, allowing our students to think for themselves. Well, Iti, we've taken a lot of your time, uh, but my last question is, uh, can you maybe uh, offer us a little bit of an outlook? Uh, what are you working on uh, now? Okay. Uh, thank you for, for this kind question. Uh, actually, I, when, I was, when I mentioned Virginia Woolf now, uh, uh, it's, it, I already hinted, at my contemporary project, I now work on the political agency 
or political subjectivity of children. Uh, interestingly enough, children played active part in politics throughout history. Uh, since ancient times, the Crusades, and of course, contemporary politics, think of Greta Thunberg, the famous Greta Thunberg, uh, of course, uh, children of various ages are politically engaged, yet we usually don't think of them as political subjects, and we don't think of the way of the relations between adults and children as oppressive relations. We usually don't think of children as an oppressed group. We don't think of them as, uh, that it is possible that children will somehow, someday revolt against this oppression or domination. So my contemporary project is trying to think about children's political subjectivity and even trying to imagine a world in which, just like what the model is feminism, feminism, can we think in a way of what uh, is sometimes referred to as childism, kind of a movement for the liberation of children. Of course, to think of the liberation of children, we need to imagine a very different society, very different social relations, very different families, very different education institutions, but this is a fascinating project, and I hope to be able to show the public uh, some early fruits uh, very soon. Itai, thank you very much for joining me on New Books in Education. Thank you, Kai. It was very interesting for me, and I hope for you as well. <laughs>